Uh, we're going to talk about Ruth's story. Um, and uh, Ruth is a, is a great little book in the Bible. And uh, uh, we'll, we won't spend a ton of time here, but we'll probably, I'm going to guess, maybe, maybe two weeks, uh, if not three. But uh, next week, of course, is uh, a wanna open house. But we'll still meet in here, but I, I realize probably we could probably meet in my office uh, because many of you that will be working in Awana will be out there because for the, for the first part of the time, we want it to be an opportunity for you to get to meet some of the Awana uh, parents as they come through with their young people. And so it'll be a little bit different. Um, and then, of course, the following week will be our missions conference. And uh, Brother Sisk will be here on that night. We'll hear from one of our missionaries as well on that Thursday night, and then uh, um, we'll also hear from the other ones on Saturday. So a lot of things going on, but it's good to be part of something where something's going on. Um, But we're in Ruth chapter number one, and uh, you really could start anywhere um, as as the book unfolds here. For the sake of our text in the uh, alliterated outline, we're going to begin in verse number 16, but I do want to familiarize yourself a little bit with the story. Um, it's the, the timing of it is similar to the time of the book of Judges, uh, when you go to Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and so you, you find some similarities uh, there. But uh, in this, as it begins, and I don't have the slide in here, and that's my fault for that, but how many of you have your Bibles with you? Are you, are you there? So you could follow along with me in chapter number one. Let's start in verse number one, just in way of give us a little bit of introduction. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilian. Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Killian died, also both of them, and the woman that was left of her two sons and her husband. Now notice this. And she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. May I remind you that, uh, you know, I I think I said this before, but not particularly relating to this story. But uh, you find many times throughout the Bible when bad times came and somebody bailed on God. But always remember this. Um, even when they come back, and many, many times in Scripture they do come back, but you also find that the people that stayed were still there when they came back. Always remember, Ruth left. Now, I know it wasn't necessarily of her own choosing because her husband left and her sons and their wives and so forth, and so it was a contingent of people that did leave at that time. But everybody else who stayed got through that bad time. That's really a great lesson. You know, because a lot of times we think, well, things aren't going so well, so I'm going to do something different. No, if things aren't going so well, hang on, because it won't always be bad. I said it, I think, two Sundays ago, it won't always be like this. And it doesn't matter what your this is. As we were, I think it was when we were continuing or concluding uh, the story about Job. And in Job's life, 
uh, it was very easy to look at that window when, man, that was a bad day. That was a bad season. And imagine the grief uh, that just continued to buffet him. You know, that's the kind of thing you don't get over. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's ever in front of you, the loss, the hurt, the wounds, always there. Um, and I realize that the Bible says, as you get to the end of Job, that God had blessed him greatly after that. Yeah, but he, he didn't get those kids back. And, you know, those, those memories were still there. And so that, that hurt, that loss was still present and still evident. But he didn't bail on God because the Bible says, in all this, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. And so in, in this particular case, you find somebody who bailed when the going got tough. Let me, let me say this to us tonight. You will always have a season in life when it's tough to keep going with God. Do you know that? See, sometimes we make the, we make the gross miscalculation that if I keep going with God, I'm never going to have a bad time. Really? <laughs> Show me that story in the Bible. I'll preach it Sunday. It's not, it's not the way it works. It, it, your Christian faith and your walk with the Lord is what keeps you going through tough times. You know, it's been said, tough times don't last, tough people do. I mean, uh, you, you, th- you think of anybody that's ever mounted anything, they've, they've done it through Arduous difficulty. I mean, great, great challenges. Doesn't, doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter what the adversity is. I, I finished reading a book last week about the, the Navy SEALs, and um, it, it just their, their training is just un, unreal. And uh, I, I, I realize that, uh, you, know, that you know, people have different opinions and, and thinking and so forth, but you know me. I love our military anyway. But I was reading this particular account, and... Um, the, the training is just off the charts. And uh, one of the things they go through is a terrible week, and they call it Hell Week. Um, and they put them through, uh, it's about six days where they don't let them sleep. Uh, they, their training is just nonstop. And they, if you go to sleep and if they see you dozing, they send you out into the surf and they, they have different names for it. They tell you, go make sugar cookies. And that's you rolling in the coast uh, in the surf and then rolling in the sand until every, every part of your body is covered in sand and you, you, don't, you don't get to clean off that. You don't get to change that. Um, but but they, they do all that, and one of the reasons they do that is they try to weed out those who can't make it under the most difficult circumstances. And uh, one of the last things they do in their training is they will do a five-mile ocean swim. Five miles open water, ocean swim. That's pretty good. Um, and they do it, in, uh, they do it with a, a swim buddy, so they do it in tandem. And, uh, but, but along the way, there was one particular uh, story of a gentleman that they were highlighting, um, and I, I shared some of this with uh, some of the guys in our last leadership meeting. Um, they, they told him, he, he and his buddy, they were doing, I think it was just, I say just, I think it was just a two-mile swim. Um, it was a two-mile swim out in open water, and they got, to the, uh, they got back on the, on the beach and swam. It was about 100 yards off the coast, and they swam back up and came in exhausted. You, you can only imagine. I mean, just exhausted. Threw themselves down there, and their instructors tell them, you guys are an embarrassment to your, to your company, to your unit. You ought to be ashamed. And everybody else was standing there at attention. They had finished. And so uh, they put them in a a type of training called the circus. If you failed something, you got to go to the circus. Well, the circus meant you got two extra hours of, 
of, uh, of exercises, calisthenics, and all those types of things at the end of your 16-hour of training that day. You got two extra hours. But they said this one particular guy, one thing that they noticed about him was that he continued to improve, he and his swim buddy. They got to the last week of training, that five-mile swim, and they're swimming. They, it's, it's, it's at night. Um, and so you, you, you really don't know where everybody is at. You can't see anybody. You just know you're, you've got a compass and you're swimming and uh, you've got a canteen so you can get some fresh water along the way because you're in the Pacific. You can't be drinking the ocean water. And they came in and his instructor's there. They're exhausted, but it's so dark they can't see anybody. And he said once again, and he called them by name, he said, you are an embarrassment to your unit. And he said, in fact, look around. You've embarrassed them so bad, you beat everybody. And uh, that man went on to become a, uh, an admiral, a rear admiral in the Navy, and uh, a commander of SEALs. But one of the things they said was that tough training is designed to eliminate those who can't make it. Now, nobody in here, I don't think, is aspiring to become a Navy SEAL. I like to watch the SEALs, you know, and, and that's, that's about it, you know. But I'm talking about the, ooh, you know, those, those kind. Okay, so you trying to figure out what I'm talking about here. Was that a pretty good impression? <laughs> Just off the cuff. It wasn't even in my notes. Do a SEAL impression. But, uh, um, but the idea is to eliminate. You know, a lot of times in life, that's what happens to us. You know, it, it's amazing to me how, in, and many of you could say this, you've been in church, some, some of you in here are, are first-generation Christians, you're, you're newer Christians, but some of you have been in church for a long time, and you can look around and see some of the people that were in church with you five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and they're nowhere to be found. Because I, and I'm not picking on them, I'm not being critical of them, but a lot of times what you go through in life is meant to make you. But if you're not careful, you can allow it to break you. And it's a huge distinction and a huge difference in the Christian life. That's why when you look at a story like Ruth, you understand that there were many people who, uh, who stuck it out. They knew it wasn't a great time. They knew there would be times when you were getting hungry, but, uh, but they still stuck it out. I read a book last week. I, well, I finished it on the plane about the, uh, the Donner Party. And I've read a couple stories about them. It's amazing to me every time I read it. But uh, 87 of them, of course, attempted the cross. And uh, there were several things they did they knew they shouldn't have done. Um, But uh, 40 of them died there in the mountains. And, of course, you know the story. Many of them were, I won't get into all of that, you know, because (laughs) some of you are saying, please, my children are here. Okay, I'm going to leave it at home. But anyway, you you know the the story. But, But along the way... Uh, man, uh, you, you, one thing you learn about our country from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, is people were very hardy. I mean, they, they were resilient. They were, they were, it was just amazing how, how tough they were and how, uh, uh, how, how much, you know, intuition they had. And, but, but even then, uh, they knew that, uh, hey, there's some things that you, you've got to do if you're going to survive, if you're going to go through things. And you know, the thing about the Christian life, it's really not as hard as we make it out to be. But a lot of people will bail on God. They say the average church in seven years turns over completely. If you look at a church from seven years, if you go back, and you know, we've been here three and a half years, but if you go back seven years ago, how many of you were here seven years ago? Okay, wow, that's a pretty good number. 
Um, okay, you're, you're done now. Okay, we know, we know you, you guys are... No, I'm kidding. All right. Wait. Jim's waving his hands, waving by as he said, now, um, don't you do that. All right. Um, but they say the average church flips over about every seven years. And as, as I look back over my life, I realize there's a lot of times I'll, I'll be at a church and I'll, I'll go back or I would go back to my parents' church when my mom and dad were still alive. And I just looking around and, a, hey, I don't recognize that. Hey, whatever happened to so-and-so? Oh, they're not here. Whatever happened to so-and-so? Oh, they're not here. And a lot of times it's just, it's just difficulties and hardships in life. And people bail on God. So I'm saying all that kind of as, a, as an intro here with Ruth. I'm not saying Ruth left of her own volition. I'm simply saying she left, and a whole lot of people stayed and got through it. And so whatever's going on in your, whatever your this is right now, remember, it won't always be that way. So that's the story as we get down. And so we're reading now in verse number 16. So skip on ahead. And if you don't have your Bible there with you, you can look at verse number 16, and we will... Um, we will jump right in. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. This is, uh, this is pretty amazing how this unfolds here. Of course, uh, Ruth tells them, um, uh, rather, in, in this particular instance, Naomi tells them, um, you, you don't have to stick around. And she says, Ruth says, I'm not leaving. Now, we know uh, that the other one decided to, to leave, but Ruth did not. And so she said she was going to stick with her. So the first thing that we notice about uh, her ability to live a life without regret is making the right decision. And may I just say this, more of our trouble in life comes from bad decisions than probably anything. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, I mentioned this in our connection group two weeks ago, but most of our difficulties in life come from the wrong choices we made. We're not really victims of circumstances. We're really not. Everybody's got circumstances. Everybody does. Uh, I think it was in the Conqueror series. We, they gave the statistics one time where they said, and I, I'm, I'm going to miss it, but I, th- I think the number of circumstances makes up about 3% of your life. Consequences about 97 I don't know if that, whether that's accurate or not, but I know this. Everybody's got circumstances. You didn't have any control over the family to which you were born. You didn't have any control over your parentage. You, you didn't have any uh, control over your genetics. Um, those are things that you didn't have any control over. Uh, whether your mom and dad split up as, as, a, as a child, whether you came from a broken home, you, those are things you didn't have any control over. Those are circumstances. Everybody has them. You might look at somebody else and say, well, their circumstances are better than mine. No, they're just different. Everybody's got, everybody's got, when the Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust, don't think, understand this, everybody's got stuff. Everybody's got problems. You typically only see the, the, the greatness in somebody because typically that's where we're programmed. We're always programmed to think the grass is greener on the other side. Well, you know, you ever, you ever been around cattle? They're always sticking their head through the fence trying to t- get that grass on the other side. And it's really not a whole lot of different th- than the pasture in which they're grazing. But, it's just, it, but that's not their pasture, so they want it. And so that's how we are by human nature. And so we, we think, well, but I didn't have so-and-so circumstances. Okay, we understand this is a given. 
Everybody's got circumstances. But the real question is what happens next, and that is the consequences of the choices we make. You can say, well, um, well, my parents split up. Okay, what did you do about it? Did that become the crutch that you used to, for the rest of your life? And you said, well, the reason this happened is, no, the reason this happened, whatever you, this is, is because of the choices you made. And so Ruth has enough sense here to say, I'm not going to make a bad decision just because things aren't going my way, just because this circumstances didn't, didn't turn out like I thought it would, just because this is not going like I hoped it would, I'm not going to allow that to become the thing that identifies me and distinguishes me, and so I'm going I'm to make the right choices here. So we see the first thing about her was she made a wise choice. By the way, you go, you go from Genesis to Revelation. We look at it somewhat like Cain. Cain had an opportunity to make the right choice, but he didn't. God said to him, if thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? I mean, that was, that was, a, that was a head-to-head meeting point with God. He said, if you're going to do the right thing, it's going to work out. I'm paraphrasing there. But if thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? It's amazing how many times God comes to man with a question. He comes to Adam, where art thou, Adam? He comes to Cain, where's your brother? God comes with a question because he gives a man an opportunity to come clean. Cain doesn't do that. He comes back with a rhetorical, am I my brother's keeper? What do you got to say about that? Rather than coming clean, he tried to sidestep it and swerve around it. But God said to him, if you're doing the right thing, everything's going to work out okay. If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted. But if not, then sin lies at the door. And with sin, remember this, every time there's sin, there's a consequence for it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are. It's inescapable. It's irrefutable. And so that's a choice that Cain made. Now, Cain makes the statement after the fact. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. But a punishment wasn't because of his circumstance. The punishment wasn't because, well, God liked Abel. He could have said, well, it's not fair. He liked Abel's offering. No. He punished you because of your bad decision. Your offering was rejected, but not because you were Cain. Your offering was rejected because you tried to do something other than what God approved. And as a result, then you made a choice, and that choice carries consequences. You get, uh, we were talking about Jonah not too long ago. Jonah, one of the great examples in the Bible of somebody who made a choice. God always lets you choose. You ever notice that? He always does. So Jonah makes his choice, and he decides, I'm going to flee from the presence of the Lord. Boy, how dumb is that? You ever realize how, you, you know, you think, now, by the way, Jonah was a prophet used of God. God used him in a powerful way to cause an entire city to repent and turn to God. But man, was he dumb. I'm going to get on this boat and get away from God. Really? You're going to get away from God. Sometimes we think that. It's amazing how we think. And by the way, sin has a way of twisting our thinking. You know, the further you, the further you and I get down the road of sin, the more wacky our judgments get. I mean, we, we can make some really, really dumb choices. Sometimes we'll make some really dumb uh, comments and statements. Why is that? Because, man, we're just not seeing things clearly. So here's Jonah, a preacher, a man of God. I'm going to run from God. <laughs> I mean, really, it's almost a little bit humorous because you think, really? Come on. No, you're not. Yeah, no, I'm going to run from God. I know you can't, and I know most people have never gotten away with it, but this time, I'm going to get on a boat. I'm going to get on a boat because, you know, it's kind of like this. If I'm on a boat, God's not going to sink all those guys for me. I mean, right? You know, I'm thinking about probably all the things Jonah was thinking. You say, why? I've wondered myself a time or two. I've never gotten on a boat. 
But I, but I thought, wait, is anybody else going to go down with me? And so here, here he is. He gets on the boat. What's he doing? He's making a choice. And with those choices come consequences. You can say, well, I'm a victim of my circumstances. No, you weren't. Well, I was born a Jew, and so there was a natural uh, angst or gulf between me and the Assyrians. Sure, that's true. But that's not an excuse to make the decision that you made. And so he makes the choice. God says, okay, I'll let you choose. And so he becomes, you know, well-baked or a giant fish, a great fish. And so he swallows him. And here's Jonah, whose life has forever changed. Man, can you imagine? Can you imagine? I just can't even imagine. Three days in the belly of the fish. You know, I'm just, I'm thinking about it. It's just amazing to even comprehend it. Here he is, you know, just, and I know you've seen Pinocchio and all that, you know, and of course that's true, right? We, we understand that. But uh, Pinocchio, that's from the intertestamental period. But so, you know, we've all got our mind of here he was, you know, he's just kind of swimming around and, you know, no, man, I would imagine the acidic content in that, in that fish or whale is just destroying and eating away at his skin. Most Bible historians said that Jonah, when he came out, was forever changed. And I don't, I don't mean, yeah, obviously, <laughs> yeah. Are you changed? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can tell you, I, I can give you a great study on whales and their digestive system and all that. But, but man, and then he's thrown up. I don't know about you. If, if I hear someone making, you know, if, if, if I hear that noise, do you know? You, you know what I'm saying? How many of that noise bothers you? Bothers me. And uh, I can remember when the, kid, when the kids were smaller and one of them might do that. And uh, I told my, I'd tell my wife, I'd say, honey, if you want me to clean it up, you're going to have to clean up for two. Because, you know, clean up on aisle everywhere. I mean, I, ju- I, just, I just have a hard time with that. I'll change a diaper. I think I did that a time or two. But, but seriously, but when it comes to that, man, now here's Jonah and he gets thrown up. He's in whale puke up on the coast. And I don't know about you. I'm just thinking, oh, man. We went to the, we went to the beach one day when we were in Pensacola, and the, a storm was coming off the coast, and it stormed real heavy that night. And so all the algae was kicking up. I mean, you, you really didn't even want to get in the water. So we, we didn't get in the water. We just kind of, st- you know, I stood there and but, but, and every time it'd come in, there was these huge chunks of green and seaweed and all that. And I thought, oh, that's pretty. That's pleasant. I want to go, go bathe in that, you know, right? And, it, of course, here's some people, you know, they're oblivious to it. They're coming out, and it's stuck all over them. I'm thinking, yeah, you're smart. But so, so I didn't get in the water. But can you imagine being hurled onto the beach in well puke? Well, that's my circumstances. No, that's the consequence of a decision. And understand this, every time we make a wrong choice, there will always be a, a consequence for those bad decisions. So, Ruth said, in essence, she said, I'm not leaving. And uh, that was the right choice. If you go back over your life, the greatest successes in your life can probably be attributed to the most simplest, the most simple right decisions. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, you know, we talk, we talk so often about bad choices, but hey, 
Man, I, I can remember the time when uh, the guy offered me drugs and I told him no. His life went this way and mine went that way. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm any better than him. You're missing the point. But his choice took him down a different road. I remember hearing a preacher tell the story years ago. He, he graduated from high school and uh, he was out with three of his friends and it was graduation night. And they were going to go out drinking and, and he said he got in the car with them after graduation. He had never drank and he, he came from a very very solid Christian home. And he got in the car with him, and uh, the guys in the front seat opened a couple bottles of beer, handed it back to him, and he said, guys, I don't drink, and he said, I can't be around that. And they started laughing at him. He said, we're celebrating graduation. He said, what are you talking about? He said, I can't be around it. He said, you need to take me home. They said, we're not taking you home. You get out right here. And they're out in the middle of nowhere, and they kicked him out. And that night, that car wrecked, and every one of those high school boys on graduation night went out to eternity. Now, that man became a pastor and pastored for over 40 years. One good call. Let me out. You know, he had, he had all the opportunity to make the wrong choice. And I'm not saying had he made the wrong choice that God would have taken his life that night. I don't know. We, we can't get into that and play all that kind of stuff because I'm not God. But I know this. He could forever point to that one night where one decision changed everything. You know, that really wasn't a, it may have, for peer pressure's sake, that may have been a hard decision to make, but it really wasn't a hard decision. It was, I'm not drinking and I'm not going to be around you if you are. And so he said, let me out of the car. And so you can point to that and say, well, that changed everything for him. It was a product, his life, 40 years in the ministry, multiple children, multiple grandchildren, all the product of one good choice. You and I could point to any number of things, product of a good decision, product of a good decision. The fact that you're here in the Lord's house tonight doesn't mean you've made every right call your life. None of us ever have. <laughs> Man, I, I, was, uh, I was in for some tests this week at the doctor, and uh, um, the lady said, do you smoke? I said, not since third grade. And uh, of course, you, you all know the story. So I was, I, was, I was in rare form. So my wife was looking at me like, oh, brother. But anyway, so I said, not since third grade. And so she said, I got to hear. So I told her just a little bit of it. But anyway, but you know, that was a, that was a choice. That was just a, a simple decision. And so you, you have to understand that most of the good in your life is a result of a good decision along the way that may not have seemed major, but it actually turned out pretty good. And so if you get in the habit of making good decisions with regularity, in essence, they become habit. I think there's a book, I, the book is called The Power of Habit. I'm trying to remember the, the author. I read it last year, so I can't even remember who wrote it. But, but it's the idea of, of making your good decisions so often that they become part of your routine. You know, I, I, I get up every morning. First thing I do is usually is I'll brush my teeth. Then I'll make coffee. Just seeing if you're listening. I, I have never done that. But anyway, I, I know people who do. My dad used to always make it the night before and have it ready to go and, you know, have it timer set and it'd start brewing and he'd drink a whole pot. But I'll brush my teeth. But, you know, it's not like I get in, the, get in there in the morning and think, I'm not sure if I want to do this today. Now, I know some of you wrestle with that, okay? You know, and, <laughs> you know, but it's not something I wrestle with because it's something that over, over a period of many, many years, it's habit. It, it's habit. And, and that's what good decisions will do for you in life. 
And I would encourage you, I know we have the young people, it won't be, you know, I guess next week or so, many of these young people will be gone and they won't be here for this particular study. But I'm telling you young people here, particularly those of you that are in school right now, hey, listen, if you get nothing else out of church, get this, just make good decisions. Just make good ones. When you come to a crossroads and you're good or bad, choose good. Just, just choose good. And you, every one of you young people in here, every one of you, Christopher, Alex, I go around, Caitlin and Kristen, keep going from both sides. Every one of you young people in here that are in school, all of you are smart enough to make the right call. You don't need your mom to be present with you. You don't need your dad to be there telling you what's the right call. Julia, you know exactly what is right. And you're going to have opportunities right now during your school years. And, and, and listen to me, Evan. You're going to have every opportunity to good, not good. Right call, wrong call, all of your life. I promise you this. I'm not going to tell you you're going to make a million bucks in life. If you do, come here and tie. I'm going to tell you this. Listen, I'm being dead serious, trying to invest some humor there. I'm going to tell you this. If you will do this, if you will make the right call in most of your decisions in life, you're going to do okay. You're not going to bat a 1,000. Because your mom and dad and every one of his adults can stand here tonight and tell you, you're not going to get them all right. Okay? Some of the moms and dads are looking at each other saying, see? No, that's not what I'm talking about. But I will tell you this. You will spare your life a ton of hardship and heartache if you'll know most of them by just doing the right thing. And that's exactly what this book is about at the outset, is Ruth decides, I'm not leaving. I'm going to make the right call in this matter. By the way, every time you make the right choice, it gives you an opportunity to make more right choices. And every time you make the wrong choice, it puts you in a quandary where you're facing another dilemma. Am I going to continue down this road? Am I going to keep heading this way? So she makes a wise choice. First one she made is this. Boy, I told you we haven't got very far. This will be a year-long study. Um, The first thing she made was she was going to be faithful to her family. Faithful to her family. She said, you are my family. Now, I I love that verse. The verse we read, verse 16, is often repeated and used in, in marriage ceremonies and wedding vows. But she said, I'm not leaving, you're my people. Now, I want to say this. Part of that is, and here, you young people, listen again. Your mom and dad have you, and I'm only talking to the ones that are here tonight. I know not everybody could be here. Other people are out of town, traveling, sick, whatever, responsibilities. But I'm talking to all of you that are here right now. You're either you're in school or you're starting school this next week. Mom and dad have you in church because it's a good call. Stick with that call. I, you say, is it always going to be perfect? No. No. You're going to hear some sermons you don't like, some sermons that stink. You're going to get a lesson sometimes. You think, oh. You're going to hear a song. You think, I could do better. You're going to, you're going to see something. You're, someone's going to be unkind to you. Hey, get over it. That's life. Somebody's going to talk about you. Hey, that's life too. But don't bail on church. See, remember, she, Ruth is in this situation, this predicament, because someone bailed when things got tough. And so... You stay faithful to your family, it means obviously stick together, but it also means the decisions that a mom or a dad has made by you being where you're at tonight. It doesn't mean everything went perfect, it just means I'm here 
And mom and dad saw that I was here. And so what do you want to do? You want to keep doing it. You want to keep doing it. You know, the biggest reason I'm in church tonight is because mom and dad made me. Biggest reason. 56 years of going to church pretty faithfully, but not because of this guy, but because there was a mom or dad who said, we're going to church. Oh, man. How many times did I say that? Uh, not very loudly. I said it a lot, but, but I, I didn't say it loudly more than a few times because I wanted to keep all of my teeth. But man, I, I, you know, I, that's, that's just not how it worked. We were in church. Doors were open. We were in church. It, it didn't matter. And, and I, I learned that from a dad and a mom who said, we're going to church. So you stay faithful. It doesn't matter that everything's going to be perfect. It doesn't matter that, that things aren't going to go your way. You stick with it when it comes to your uh, faithful to your family. Then the second thing we notice about her, she had respect for position in her elders. She recognized who she answered to. Boy, this is something that is terribly lacking in our culture today. I mean, it's just the lack of respect for anything when it comes to when it comes to authority, particularly when it comes to the authority of Scripture. It doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. People are doing their own thing, and so you're, you young people, listen to this, because in, in five, ten years down the road, I mean, I'm telling you, our culture is, is, is spiraling rapidly. Now, I think there's plenty of great hope. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not, a, I'm not a doomsday forecaster by any stretch of the imagination. We're living in a great place and a great time and a great land of opportunity. I understand all of that. But I also understand popular culture is to do away with this. And you, it doesn't matter where you go to school. It doesn't matter what, what you choose for a vocation in life or what you pursue for college. I'm going to tell you this. It will be harder and harder for you to stay true to sticking with those tenets that your family has brought you up with and then holding respect for the elders and the authorities in your life. And that's the third thing, respect for authority. You see, one of the things that our church covenant says is that we believe the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. It doesn't matter what... It, listen, I'm the pastor, but I'm not going to be here forever. I'm here for however long God has me here. You know, there was Jerry Lindsay, there was Jared Rhodes, there's Stuart Mason, somebody else is coming. God already knows who it is, who it is. It's just the way it is. Sometimes somebody will say, you know, hey, that's a nice office. I've told people this many times, it's not mine, I'm just borrowing it. What do you mean? Well, it's not going to be mine for the, when the next guy comes. And I don't have any, by, by the way, I'm not planning on leaving. Don't, don't misread what I'm saying. I'm just saying, we don't have any idea. And I, I know this, what the Word of God says about it being our final authority and what our covenant teaches us is that if I ever say anything that's contrary to the Bible, I'm wrong. And the Bible's true. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. And it doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's popular politically, whether it's, whether it's popular in our culture, whether it's popular with our friends, if God says something that is contrary to what's going on in our life, then we've got to make a decision. And when we start making those decisions, those choices bring consequences. So the first thing we see about Ruth is she said, I'm going to make the right call here. How do I do that? Number one, I'm going to be faithful to my family. And I understand mom and dad said, Stu, we're going to church. Yes, sir. And mom, dad, I'm still in church tonight. 
I'm not bragging on me. I'm saying thank you for dragging me to church when I didn't want to go. It's one of the reasons I'm in church tonight. My dad also taught me to respect elders. Our culture has lost that. I was talking, we, were, we had dinner tonight, my wife and I and Lauren, and um, we were talking about older people. And uh, I can remember one time I was in a feed store with my dad, and we were picking up some, some grain and things, and I said something, and I don't, I don't remember that I was being disrespectful to the man behind the counter, but he was an older gentleman. He was a retired gentleman. He was in overalls and a flannel shirt. I can see it like it was yesterday. Had a straw hat on. I said something to him, and I guess my dad thought I smarted off to him. My dad hauled off, backhanded me right across the jaw. And by the way, I know in our culture today, I can't, I, I, nobody should ever do that. Well, it didn't, didn't mar me too bad. You know, and I, I know you may not discipline that way, but I'll tell you one thing. Dad got my attention. He got my attention in a hurry. I said, what, what was that for? And he said, you owe that man an apology. You apologize to him. And by the way, that type of treatment doesn't happen in our culture now. One, we're terrified to do anything to our children. We'll let them run around and act like maniacs. Come on now. Don't leave me hanging up here. By the way, you do need to be careful how you discipline and where you discipline. I, I'm, not, I'm not for beating your kids. I'm not for, for that, but I do think the Word of God is very clear on, on disciplining your children. Train up a child the way he should go, and there's, there's, there's a whole lot in the book of Proverbs about it. And uh, my mom's life verse was, uh, the blueness of the womb cleanseth away evil, so do stripes the inward parts of the belly. And so we don't even know that's in the Bible. It's in there. My mom knew it. Uh, she could quote that one, but uh, love you, Mom. But my, my point is, Dad said, you respect authority, and you respect your elders. We're losing that in America. We have such disregard for older people. Uh, Listen, you young people, when you get a chance to sit around and talk to your grandparents, listen to them. Get get off your stinking device and talk to a grandma or grandpa. You see some guy with a World War II hat? Talk to him. Ask him where he served. Thank him for serving. You'll be amazed at how much they'll open up because they just want somebody to talk to them. When you hear about somebody that's up in years who's having surgery, jot them a note, tell them you're praying for them, and really do it. What are you doing? You're teaching that child to respect their elders and those in a position, and then finally respect for authority. You see, ultimately, when you teach your children, and we teach all of us to respect authority, we're ultimately teaching them to respect Him because He is the final authority. Our time is gone. Let's stand. Lord, we thank you for your word and the lessons from Scripture. God, I'd ask you to please help us now, and I pray you'd bless, uh, bless your church. And Lord, I pray you'd help us throughout the balance of this week. And as we go into Sunday, God, we do ask for favor. And Lord, I pray that you'd meet the need of everyone here. We think especially, perhaps even as you ordained it, to, uh, for the hearts of these young people tonight that are here, God, please help them. We're so thankful for them. We realize what a great privilege and responsibility it is to to have them, to train them, even for a small window, for a small season. And God, I pray that they would follow you from the earliest age, help them to stay true to you and to the Word of God. Go with us now, this night. Give us safety and bringing us back again on Sunday. We pray, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.